0: This is Covered Calls with Kevin Simpson, featuring expert insights and analysis from the industry's top investment professionals. If you'd like a deeper understanding of today's markets, this is the show for you. Welcome to At Covered Calls, our podcast where we try to bring enlightened speakers in the world of finance. And today we are so lucky to have Rob Seachin joining us. Rob is the CEO, managing partner, and co-founder of New Edge Capital Group. Rob, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Uh, you're welcome, it's great to be here, Kevin.
0: You always look like a million bucks. It's, it's humbling for, to have to sit next to you, but uh, thanks, thank, thank you. I don't uh, know about here. that. <laughs> now listen, our, our audience, Rob, is primarily financial advisors. We've got great financial advisors around the country who tune in. And, and some of them might not be as familiar with New Edge. Could you give us a little background on it? I know in 2022, Barron's named New Edge in the top 100 RIAs, but I know there's still a lot of financial advisors out there that might not have a, a great familiarity with the firm. Tell us about New Edge.
1: Yeah, so so like your audience, it sounds like um, New Edge was a firm built by a financial advisor for financial advisors. I mean, I spent my entire career as a financial advisor, and like most of your audience, I'm sure, trying to drive better outcomes for clients. And I thought the best way to drive better outcomes was in an independent setting. But because I always worked at a big bank, I was used to having a depth of resources at my disposal to help cover clients. And uh, that worked for a long time. I mean, I started my career at Morgan Stanley. It was a wonderful place to be back in the days of... uh, uh, Byron Ween, uh, Barton Biggs, and Steve Roach, and it was uh, culturally one of the greatest places in the world. I felt like when I walked into a meeting, I felt like a, a young superman because I could brandish that firm on the on the front of my jersey, and I, I played better and, and kind of played above the rim. Um, you know, that was very important to me to have a depth of institutional talent to be able to provide advice and people wanted to affiliate with that ecosystem um you know i then went on to lehman brothers uh which was a great experience for me as well i know a a lot of people might say that theirs wasn't as great as mine was but uh, also very culturally significant what i loved about lehman is they wanted to grow they wanted to win and when you were at a place like that that momentum was a rising tide that lifted all ships Obviously, Lehman failed uh, in the midst of the financial crisis, and uh, that was hard for everybody involved—clients, uh, I- I- employees, and obviously the senior leadership at the company. And you know, when when Titanic hit the iceberg, my Carpetia was UBS. So then I went to UBS, uh, and I think I I built a very nice uh, business advising significant clients of the firm really in the ultra high net worth space. But throughout my progression there, I started to realize that my clients wanted more than they could get at UBS. And the notion of one firm, uh, being the central resource for them was not something that appealed to them. And it's not something that I really believed was in their best interest. So I began to explore the notion of independence and, uh, you know, independence, you know, kind of checks all the boxes. You move to the same side of the table as your, as your client. And uh, you can do that at a big firm, but it's much harder because when you're at a big firm, you have a heavily curated uh, set of resources. And I just wanted to consume everything that was great out there for my clients. And uh, you just couldn't do that. And so I began the process of exploring independence. Um, what I quickly noticed was that there weren't a lot of firms out there that had the resources that I was used to and the resources that were required to give clients great advice and so um, at some point along that continuum, I decided to uh, I decided to build that firm and what was that firm going to be? It was going to be a firm that drove better outcomes for clients by, using the most disruptive force in the world today, which is financial technology, financial technology to drive better price, better execution, um, more informed decision-making from a portfolio construction standpoint, better risk management decisions. You know, a lot of the big firms have even moved to quant in managing portfolios. And we certainly embrace that philosophy too. And then, um, and then obviously organizing assets, because no one firm has a monopoly on great ideas and so being able to see what people have everywhere and give them advice holistically was important but more than that we had to stack up a resource set an intellectual capital set in two verticals together wealth strategy which is a human capital thing right it's it's tax specialists it's trusted estate attorneys it's it's structuring experts it's uh, the legal advice and structuring advice that marries uh, with the client's long-term goals and objectives so they can tax efficiently get there, so they can structurally efficiently get there. And then we hired some of the best and brightest people in the industry. I'm fortunate to have been backed by an institutional investor. Uh, Edgeco is the, the, the parent company. Um, Edgeco uh, is today, with our assets, $160 billion AUA business. And uh, they are backed by two institutional investors, on Capital and Waterfall. And uh, you know, having that expertise in-house as we set out to, to build what we built was really special, but it also gave us the, the uh, economic ammunition yeah. <laughs> to hire very talented people, some of which you see on TV all the time, like Cameron Dawson and Ben Emmons, and they're visible, but a lot of others who aren't as visible as they are and marry that with the technology, marry that with the strategy, marry that with the platform, and then because of our size and scale, I mean, New Edge is a thirty-six billion-dollar RIA and RIA enablement platform. We launched in November of twenty twenty. So to give you some sense for the progression that we had, we're very proud of the ranking you mentioned. Um, we're number, I think, fifteen on Forbes and number twenty-nine on Barrons in our first year. That's amazing. In participating in that. And so when, you, when you're when you as big as we are and you kind of have the brand momentum we have, we have this access, you know, to great firms like yours, but also to the big banks. They pay attention to us. Um, and so the rationale for the story was to drive better outcomes, but why we created it, we thought it didn't exist. And so we are heavily institutionally... Resourced and caliber firm that uh, you know, I would argue is more resourced than any of the private banks out there, and a consumer of everything that's great for clients.
0: It's a it's a great story, and I think I know the answer to this question in advance. But is there anything that you miss from the wirehouse side, from the larger companies?
1: Um, at this point, no. Um, I miss some of my old friends, right? Yeah. Um, That is, and and some of my old colleagues that, uh, you know, I thought were really difference makers in in my career in life and how I, uh, you know, formed this view. The good news is my partners came with and started this, started this business with me and we made a whole host of uh, new friends that share the same, uh, same ethos that we do, same vision that we do. And uh, we're really rowing on the oars hard and, and, and. And building something distinguished and special, and again, it's all about clients. Advisors are client-oriented, yeah. so if they if they find something that works better for their clients, that's a win-win, right? And I think we've provided that ecosystem that is so virtuous that it's it's also led to far above industry growth for the advisors that join us. So they're, they're seeing
0: enormous success. It's a great again. It's a it's a great story. You mentioned uh, some of the exposure on CNBC, and certainly all of our viewers are, are very accustomed to seeing you on halftime with Scott. And, and have you found that you and your colleagues who are getting exposure there is uh, is good for business? One hundred percent.
1: You know, listen, you get bits and pieces of opportunity to communicate a message, um, and if if your message is one of consistency. I think that's, that's appealing to, the, to, to clients. Um, and so I think we've been pretty consistent and thoughtful. Um, you know we've been a little wrong on markets and being cautious, but it hasn't hurt any of our it hasn't hurt any of the performance of the things we do because we have such a quality uh, focus, and I know you do too, in the way that we build portfolios that um, clients have had one of the best years ever here at New Edge. And uh, I think they're incredibly happy with the result, despite the fact that we've approached it with caution. For, I think, very good reasons, by the way.
0: Well, I mean, let's stay there because I I, I tend to look at the macro picture the same way that you do, the same way that Cameron does. And I don't think it's ever a need to apologize for being cautious and conservative. You know, our job, number one, is to not lose money, you know, kind of protect what, what we've got. Your firm, it sounds like, deals with the ultra high net worth. They're not in the position where they necessarily need to make the most money. They need to not lose the most money. And, and that's the essence of true portfolio management. And I mm-hmm. and I look at valuations here and I think, you know, it's difficult to uh, granted, there's momentum behind this market and you can push it higher if you want to. But from a true valuation standpoint, when you're looking at things from a fundamental basis, we're, we're, we're pretty close to, to fair value. So, so I don't, I don't believe that you've gotten the call wrong by any means, and um, and I, and I share your take on the markets.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the entirety of the gains year to date have come from multiple expansion. Yeah, um, earnings estimates for both the current year and next year have been revised lower, um, and we're, we're trading at 19 times. We're back to pre-pandemic uh, peak. In the S&P, and uh, at that at that time was supported by incredibly easy monetary policy. And unless we enter a, a new uh, valuation paradigm, possibly based on uh, optimism about the, uh, the step change higher from e EPS and in technology, um, we see little upside. Uh, to current valuations, right? So it's hard. Um, on the downside, I mean, you know, if we went to a 15 and a half time, just like we saw in June and October of last year, you know, that, that means that the, you have to ask yourself, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? And, uh, you know, valuations are historically stretched in NASDAQ growth stocks. I think, you know, one of the things that we saw Earlier in the year is that the technology stocks were supported by the brief blip that we saw with the, with the regional banking crisis. And so interest rates fell and, uh, tech stocks took off and then they got another leg higher with this AI enthusiasm. And yet we haven't seen that work. It work its way through earnings. And so in the short run, if we don't have a recession though, I think the current, uh, the current environment can uh, persist because you have very high economic trajectory and uh, earnings that are in, in revenues that are, are, you know, not supposed, to, supposed to, to keep up. And I'm willing to bet that you might see some upward revisions. Now, the, the, the weird part about that is it sows the seeds for difficult times kind of prospectively. And who knows when that begins? Um, but, but ultimately those headwinds, um, because economic forecasts are going to get revised up, um, as are, as are possibly earnings forecasts, which are a little low. And that obviously, uh, makes things a little tougher because it's not what actually happens. It's, uh, what happens relative to what was expected to happen, you know? So I think those things are, uh, the reason we stay invested uh, in quality because we don't want to get caught out there. If there's this big re rating in, in, you know, some of these high PE tech stocks, um, you know, we don't want to be there. We're more okay with being in tech stocks that have all these trends in place that might be and probably are above their historical multiples, but not so exceedingly expensive. I think one of the great calls that we had was Meta at the beginning of the year, along those those same lines. It was a, it was a cheap stock with catalyzers that could benefit from this this Fang enthusiasm. Right. I remember you saying
0: it. Yeah. You and and uh, and Stephanie Link was also uh, on that bandwagon yeah. at the beginning of the year. So congratulations on that call. I I think people will always pay up for growth. You know, when you look at the multiples, and and I agree, there's massive multiple expansion that's taken place to bring this market up here. But unless you can get some earnings growth, you can't take the multiples to perpetuity. So if you're at 18 Correct. and a half or 19 on forward numbers, it, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a, an S&P that's gonna be able to break through those highs of, of, I guess maybe the first or second trading day of 2022, where where we look into the future for next year and you say, well, where can they go? So so for us, it's all about value also, but if you don't have 100% of your portfolio in Nvidia or Meta, uh, you know. Clients wonder why, I'm sure. And if it's not in there, why so is it?
1: Suffice really? it to say we don't, and sometimes they do. But <laughs> I think the beauty of what we're seeing now, and I'm sure you notice it as well, is there's a there's a broadening out in the market. So I mean I think there there is some I don't want to call it value, but I call yeah. it relative value underneath the surface. And so the whole question is does tech pause and allow some of these other things to catch up if we don't go into do a a recession, which is not our central case, and uh, or do we see a re-rating of tech as you know we get the next year? It really takes a recession to have uh, interest rates be where the Fed dots are telling us they may be in 24. I don't know that we can see the types of forward cuts that we're gonna that the markets are pricing in, and so there is some disconnect there, and it's why if you have these competitive moats that you have in your your portfolio we try to think about when we build our long-term core core, compounding portfolios that you're going to be in a place that kind of wins either way
0: absolutely investing's easy rob you buy companies that make money and pay dividends (laughs) you win in the end do you think the fed do you think the fed's going to raise two more times
1: we do we do we think they're going to raise at the uh at the next uh, in July, and then they'll probably raise 25 sometime in the fall. Um, you know, I, I, I think the Fed did get it right on inflation uh, moving down. I don't know if it hits 2% by next year, but, you know, when you look at this core services ex shelter number, um, you know, that's one of the biggest moderations we've seen uh, all year, which is a good sign that the Fed has, uh, you know, at least some control uh, in, in their policies are working in bringing prices down. Uh, they can't control quite energy or food as much, which is why they prioritize looking at the core measure. Um, but the policy we think is close to restrictive enough to get a steady cli- decline in inflation without causing a recession. So our call is they do tighten two more times. Um, you know our watch item is long-term inflation expectations, which still are above pre-pre pandemic levels. So it's a it's a really interesting environment. It reminds me of what we talked about in February. Um, you, you know the Fed is, seems to be on this this very golden path. Kevin, Yeah. Which is, you know they're, they're they're fortunate to to be on. I I'd say it was a Houdini act to to make happen what's happened. But there's a that has a lot to do with the lag effects, as you know, in the current em- environment that we're in. I mean, we've never seen. I don't know if you saw it this morning. Bridgewater came out of, with a piece that basically said why why they were wrong and. I felt like I was reading our work, right? (laughs) which is uh, on the mark. It's not wrong on investing, but wrong on the top-down strategy. You can be right on investing and and wrong on uh, on your top-down strategy. And I think clients stay happy because they look at their statements (laughs) and they're they're still pretty good. But we've never had an environment uh, where interest rates have made this sort of climb and it didn't have economic implications. I think the the impulse that's different this time is the period of hyper low interest rates, uh, you know, rate suppression led to a lot of refinancing activity. And it's almost, as you know, made it impossible for people to move. Right. So they're, they're spending a lot on their existing homes and the impulse is not being felt in in where it usually is felt, which is the housing market. It's going to start to be felt in autos and some of the other places uh, a, a, a little earlier, which is why we've played this trade down uh, kind of a, a kind of approach. And, and what I mean by that is people staying in their cars longer. So yeah. we own O'Reilly, we own AutoZone, we own a lot of these companies that are beneficiaries of trade down, and you know have uh, have some really nice tailwinds as a result of just the structural dynamics that are different. Uh, this time. But I, I can tell you that lag effects are just that. Uh, at some point, they catch up.
0: We we're, we live in a society where we want immediate gratitude and patience isn't a virtue that many of us uh, remember. But when you have a Fed that's trying to control something like this from an inflationary standpoint, you can't rush it and it takes a long time. But it, but it's working. And And the Houdini comment, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more because... Without the labor market, and to your point about housing, I mean it would be just an impossible endeavor. So fingers are crossed. And if you're if you're going to be wrong on a macro call, what a great, you know, what a great time to be wrong. And to your point, we're all invested anyway. So we're not, we're not trying to time the market. And for those I think
1: I think where advisors would struggle. I mean, we certainly struggle. We've, we we've been fortunate to have a lot of success in winning clients and our pace of deployment uh you know may have been slower than some of them would
0: have liked it's always better to be safe than sorry we Uh, agree we're 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 up against it on time but i can't tell you how much i enjoyed this conversation today tell tell our viewers where they can learn more about new edge if they are if they're potential investors and if they're potential financial advisors who are exploring independence i'm sure you would be more than happy to to share your story yeah so
1: so our, our businesses are twofold we have uh two wonderful businesses one business is run by Alex Goss. He's my co-head of New Edge Capital Group. Alex Goss and, and Neil Turner, and it's called New Edge Advisors, and so really are powered by business. So for those that are uh, interested in starting their own firms and using our chassis, we have one of the best chassis in the industry, and and we can help you build that firm. We have 120 businesses that currently do that with us so that's a wonderful business and then for those that are more like me and want to fully resource stack um the access to the Camerons, the rob seachins the ben emmons the strategists that are all fully built out we have the, the card carrying version of independence which is new edge wealth and uh that's where i moved my practice to is new edge wealth because i needed those resources and uh you know both are great places to be. You can find out about them on the respective websites, NewEdgeWealth.com, NewEdgeAdvisors.com, and it's uh, it's a great place for you to learn about the notion of independence. I've also done some other podcasts uh, with uh, uh, with Mindy Diamond. So if somebody wants to hear, you know, this what the vision was at the at the onset, it's an older one, but it's one of those things that they can go to take a to take a listen. And see why we did all this and you know, why it's working so well. It was the right strategy.
0: Well, we're 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 just thrilled about your success and we know that it will continue. And thank you so much for your time today. And we'll look forward to having you back on again in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Kevin, and, and thank you for being a great partner of ours too.
0: Thanks for great business and you're a great PM. Thanks, brother. We'll talk soon. Talk to you. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification. For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV disclosure brochure and Form CRS.